Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? Cain said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And then to 1 John chapter 3. First 16 verses. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident 
who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out, um, out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. May God bless to us. He's reading from his holy word. This week I was meeting with a couple of the guys from uh, the building next door, and we were talking about things, that how they had progressed in terms of the redevelopment and, and some of the different things that had happened uh, over the last year or so. And we were talking about some of the problems that the delay and what they've done have created for us, and, and particularly in dealing with you know, other denominational issues and, and different kinds of things that we have to negotiate through. And as we were talking, I, I just made this comment. I said, you know, one of the most, uh, the most difficult things about what has happened is that it has rather, it's damaged a bit of my reputation in terms of the pe other people that we have to work with. Uh, it's, it's made me, I, I don't know if I quite use this phrase, but this was the implication. It's, it's caused me to lose face with a number of other people. And that was not the only conversation like that I had this week. I think I had two others, although uh, in the fog of a bit of a cold, I don't remember them exactly. But it was interesting to me that the theme that came up uh, was a bit about not how something had inconvenienced me, not how something was wrong or right, uh, not how something was good or bad, but how something had caused me to lose face. Uh, anybody who's from certain cultures in the world understands that phrase because there's a lot of cultures in the world where losing or keeping face is a major issue in the culture. If you lose face, that is a bad thing and it can be very difficult for you and very painful for you and not only for you but also for your family because if you lose face then that reflects on your family. In the same way in some cultures if you gain face, if you save face then what that means is you look good even if there's a difficult situation you come out of it looking okay seeming okay, and so do those people who are around you. They seem to save face as well. And this can operate in cultures, but actually this also operated in my family growing up. You know, I've shared that, how I was raised really in this family system where saving face or losing face was very, very important. And sometimes saving face or losing face was more important than whether something was right or wrong. In other words, sometimes for people, members of my family, it was more important for people not to know the bad things than it was that there were bad things happening. And this can happen around the world. And the, the 
ultimate foundation of this idea of saving face or losing face is what we've been talking about. It's the concept of shame. Shame is a very powerful force at work in our world because of sin. And we've seen that the last couple of weeks, and we've begun to see its power, but as I've mentioned, many psychologists consider shame the primary difficult emotion that people experience around the world in every single culture. You see, shame is not confined just to cultures for whom saving or losing face is a big issue. Shame is something operating throughout the entire human experience. And many times, as the, the body of Christ, we have not really addressed this issue, yet if we don't address this issue, it is impossible for people to walk and live as disciples of Jesus Christ. You can't be a follower of Jesus and a follower of shame at the same time. Jesus and shame will lead you in contradictory directions. Now what is shame? We've given a bit of a definition here. It's the painful sensation that as a person you are, or at least appear to be, ugly, disgraceful, damaged, flawed, defective, or inadequate because of something you or someone connected to you have done or because of something that has been done to you or someone connected to you. And the shame has real power in our world today and much of what we see in the world today from the Brexit negotiations we saw in Salzburg last week to the conflict that we're seeing in Syria, much of the conflict, much of the issues in the world today and those macro issues as well as many of the issues of the struggles between husbands and wives that cause breakdown in friendship, that cause breakdown in churches have their source in shame, have their source in shame. But the good news, as we've seen, is that Jesus in the cross has dealt with the issue of shame. But now, with Jesus and in the power of the Holy Spirit, the church has, as the body of Christ, has a sacred mission to overcome shame by the power of the cross as we advance God's kingdom. And we've seen the foundation to that, but in the coming weeks now, we're going to begin to talk about how do we deal with shame, how do we engage in our mission to see people set free from the power of shame, how do we overcome shame in our own lives so that we can live in the freedom that we have as followers of Jesus Christ. To do that, first of all, we must remember, proclaim, and live out what Christ has done in the cross. This is essentially what we've talked about the last couple of weeks. We must remember, proclaim, and live out what Christ has done in the cross. This means that we need to remember how God created us and called us good. You know, when he created human beings, he said, this is my good creation. God created us without shame. We had a relationship with God that was unhindered. We had relationship with one another where we could be naked together. I mean, that's pretty amazing. Uh, and we had a divine purpose that God had given us to tend our gardens. God also created us 
with inherent worth and value as people created in the image of God. God also created us, and this is key, created us to be incomplete and not enough by ourselves. God designed you to be incomplete by yourself. That's our design, so that we need connection with God and with other people. We have to have this connection with God and with other people because we're incomplete by ourselves. Now, of course, then, we see how sin and Satan disfigured and distorted us as people, introducing shame. Because of sin, because we sin, every, every person, all people, experience shame, fear, and guilt. We all fear, experience shame, fear, and guilt because of sin that's entered into our world. And it's interesting that every culture in the world and every group or system orients itself around one of those three things, shame, fear, or guilt. In some countries, it's all about, in most of the West, it's about guilt, you know, what you've done that's outside of yourself. And our law is set up to prove whether or not you're guilty, you've actually done something, or innocent, you haven't done something. But in other countries, the issue is fear, whether or not you have power over the spiritual realities around you and power to live your life. In other cultures, the issue is shame, whether or not you are exposed, whether or not you are seen to be naked and flawed and defective, and the embarrassment and the humiliation that that brings not only to you, but also your family. But all three of these forces, shame, fear, and guilt, are at work in the world. The key thing to understand is shame is the primary one. If you don't deal with shame, you cannot deal with fear, and you cannot deal with guilt. And the fundamental problem with a lot of what uh, a lot of theology in the West and a lot of what Western Christians leaders teach is that they teach dealing with guilt, but not dealing with fear or dealing with shame. And we have to deal with all three. And thank God we can. And not only does every culture have one of these three issues, every culture develops its own strategies, its own human-centered strategies to deal with these issues. Every cult Shame-based cultures have human strategies to deal with shame. Most of the time, it has to do with protecting face. Fear-based cultures come up with human strategies to deal with fear. Many times it has to do with spells and chants and incantations. Uh, Guilt-based cultures have human strategies to deal with guilt. That's through the courts and, and getting yourself to be declared innocent or guilty. And because of sin, the second thing is, people have lost their sense of worth and value. I mean, you can see that right now in the world. I don't know if you've been following the news, but there apparently is an epidemic of self-harm amongst young women today, where they cut themselves. Do you know the reason, the fundamental reason that young women, young men are self-harming, it's a shame issue. But our society doesn't know how to deal with it. And we don't know really how to cope with it because there's no human strategy 
that can cope with it, and it's also an issue of no sense of self-worth, no sense of self-value. People don't value themselves. They don't understand who they are. And because of sin, people try to make themselves complete without reference to God or without reference to other people. It's one of the big reasons why many marriages fall apart. Why are the marriages breaking down? They're breaking down because there are two people that are coming together as husband and wife, both seeking self-fulfillment. Both seeking self-actualization in the context of that relationship. And if two individuals are simply seeking self-fulfillment to be complete in themselves by being connected with this other person, that relationship is going to fall apart. Ultimately, it will fall apart. Because a real relationship is not based on being complete in yourself. It's an acknowledgement that without God and without other people, that we are not complete. And so we see this, but then to deal with this issue, we also have to understand how Jesus redeemed us from shame, fear, and guilt in the cross. Jesus restored our relationships in the cross with God and others and our sense of purpose. Jesus restored the value and worth of every human being. Do you know every one of the 12 million or so people throughout London have value and worth because Jesus died for them on the cross whether or not they receive him. There's value and worth. Jesus made us one and all complete in him. So when we follow Jesus, in him we are complete, and he does that not only with us individually, but also us corporately. And this is the good news, and we have to proclaim this good news. We have to understand what Jesus Christ has done and be able to explain this to people and proclaim it to people and live it out if we're going to overcome shame. But shame is going to continue. Shame is going to be a factor in our world until Jesus Christ comes again. So in order to deal with it, we must apply the gospel by faith. First, to ourselves, individually and corporately. If we're not living it out ourselves, we can't share it with anybody else. And if we don't live it out ourselves, we will continue to live in shame and its disintegrating effects on our identities, our relationship, and our sense of purpose. So that's the first thing as we're overcoming shame, to know what Jesus Christ did on the cross and to proclaim it and to believe it and to live it out yourself. Because Jesus, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you've been saved by grace through faith, Jesus has defeated shame in your life. You just need to live it out. That's what we have. But not only must we remember what Jesus did in the cross, we also must recognize how shame works in people. We need to see it. We need to recognize it. And Cain, unfortunately, is a big example of this. Cain is a big example. So what do we learn from this passage in Genesis? Well, first of all, we see with Cain that people know how they should behave. God has given all people a sense of conscience. So people know when they sin. We see this around the world. It's amazing how people, until they're indoctrinated by the sinful aspects of their culture, many people have a sense of conscience, for example, that it's wrong to tell a lie. 
Young children have a sense of conscience that is wrong to steal. Young children have a sense of conscience that is wrong to be disobedient to their parents. Everybody have a sense, has a sense of what they're supposed to do. And most people know that they're supposed to live their lives with a sense of moral and personal excellence, pleasing to God. There's a sense, there's a concept of God that all people have until they push it away, pleasing to God and pleasing to other people. And God has hardwired that in us, and that was even true with Cain. The implication of the story is that Cain knew exactly what he should have done. But instead, he sinned. Now, what was his sin? Basically, Cain did not bring the first fruits to God. The contrast there, Abel, what he did, he brought the firstborn to God, and particularly the fat, which was considered the choicest part of the firstborn. Cain was not inferior because he was a tiller of the ground. The implication is that Cain just kind of sat around a bit, got his grain, got his produce or whatever, maybe ate a little bit of it, and then, oh, yeah, I should give some to God. And he gave some to God, and obviously God did not regard that as acceptable because Cain did not bring the right offering in the right spirit. And furthermore, Cain had an example, he had a responsibility to set the example for his brother Abel as the eldest, but here is Abel as the youngest setting the example. And God comes to Cain and he asks Cain the questions that he did to show him that his shame was the consequence of his own actions and no one else's. He says, Cain, you know, why, why are you so angry? Why is your face fallen here? Don't you know if you do the right thing, you'll be accepted? He knew what the right thing was, but he didn't do the right thing. And God asked him these questions, not because he needed the information. God asked him the questions because Cain, he was pointing out to Cain that it was his responsibility and his alone to do the right thing, which he didn't do. The second thing is we see the response of Cain when his sacrifice is not regarded by God. And the text says here that he became angry and his face fell. That phrase, his face fell, is what indicates the shame that's operating right there in Cain. Cain didn't do the right thing, and so he was ashamed. And furthermore, he was more ashamed because his brother Abel, the youngest, did the right thing when he, as the oldest, did not do the right thing. So Cain had this response of shame. And what we learn from this is that shame, along with fear and guilt, by the way, is the normal human response to sin. So many people, when they're looking at shame, so many psychologists and others, they say, well, shame, you know, is always bad. It's always the wrong response. It's never the right response. And frankly, if you sin, if you don't do your best, shame is a normal response to the fact that you've sinned. In fact, if you don't feel shame, that's an abnormal response to sin, not a normal response to sin. Shame is the normal response to sin. Sin in us, when we sin, it exposes that there is something profoundly flawed about us, that we are 
inadequate, we are not enough in ourselves, and we have done something that diminishes us as human beings. And that's why we feel ashamed. Because we know that there's something wrong. We know that we've diminished ourselves. We know that we've tried to be enough when we're not enough. And so we feel shame because of that. And Cain's face fell, as I said. That's a normal response. That's, that is the shame response. But notice also, shame, uh, Cain also felt angry. So that comes along there. I'll, I'll make more of that in a moment. Conversely with this, shame is not, by the way, normal or healthy when we have done well. I know a lot of people who do well and they feel shame. That's not normal. That's not healthy. And so we don't feel shame when we do well. And by the way, what does it mean to do well in this context? It does not mean to do perfectly. It means to do the best that you can with the resources at your disposal. You know, for me to do well at playing lead guitar will sound a lot different than Samuel doing well at playing lead guitar. Because Samuel's a better lead guitarist than I'll ever be. I, I could start practicing now and practice every day of my life, and I wouldn't begin to come up to Samuel's level. Now, why is that? There's nothing wrong with that. It's different talents, different abilities, different practicing and things like that. So it's no shame to me that Samuel does well. And it would be no shame to me if I picked up the electric guitar tomorrow and I did terrible. Because doing well is different for me than it is for other people. Does that make sense? So shame is normal when we sin and do not do well. Shame is abnormal when we're not sinning and are doing well. And Satan likes to trap us in those two things. The third thing we learn here from Cain is that when we feel shame, our natural yet also sinful tendency is to feel angry and direct this anger outward. Every time people feel shame, the normal sinful human response to feeling shame is to get angry. And furthermore, what we always do is we direct our anger on somebody else. Most of the time, somebody closest to us. But that happens time and time and time again. I have, seen, I have seen women become ashamed and direct their anger. All of a sudden, they're, they're angry at their friends. You know, maybe a, a woman goes to a party and she's not dressed to the same standard as other people. And it's like, so she feels a little bit ashamed, a little bit embarrassed. And that's the same kind of feeling, embarrassed, humiliated. They're all shame-related kinds of feelings. So she feels a little bit of em embarrassment. So what does she do? She doesn't say, oh, well, I should have asked my friends and, and it's my own fault. No, she says, well, golly, I'm so angry at this friend or I'm angry at this friend because they didn't tell me. They let me come to this party and not feel ashamed. It wasn't necessarily their responsibility. Or I see this uh, in, a, in a marriage situation. A husband feels shame because of something, and so he takes it out of his wife or he takes it out of his kids. This happens all the time. Our natural yet sinful tendency is to feel angry and direct this anger outwardly. Sometimes we feel the anger even before we feel the shame. Even before we know what it is, we get angry. I always challenge people, if you feel angry, always check your expectations 
Because many times we get angry because we have unmet expectations. But probably an even bigger cause of our anger is we're feeling shame. And so if you feel angry, not only should you ask, what expectations do I have that are not being met? But perhaps you should ask, am I feeling ashamed about something and what is it? And where am I responsible for the shame that I'm feeling? Now the fourth thing we learned from, from Cain here is that shame, sin causes us to experience shame and the shame that we experience is experience induces us to sin more. It's a real pattern that happens. We sin, we are ashamed, and then we want to sin some more, directing the anger or whatever it is, just like Cain did. But the important point here is God, as God told Cain, we can rule over this tendency. We are not helpless victims to shame. Nobody can blame shame for their actions, is the point. You can't say, well, I was ashamed and I couldn't help myself, but, you know, kill my best friend because he made me ashamed. No, God says, no, you can't do that. You're not a victim of shame. You need to rule over shame, and you can. You can stop the pattern. When you feel shame, you do well. You stop doing sin. Now, the next thing we learn from Cain here, too, is that we always try to escape from shame in some highly predictable ways. And you can look at that. There's one that is present here in the story, not on, but all of these are present in the Bible. Some people try to escape shame by pretending that which is shameful is not shameful or denying that it is shameful. You know, for example, I remember 40, 50 years ago that if a man and a woman lived together and were having sex and everything and weren't married, that induced shame. And frankly, that was an appropriate response because it's sinful. It's not godly. Yet today, people are saying, no, 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 no. It's important that we live together to try each other out before we make the commitment to get married. Now, that's ridiculous. I don't want to go into a shop and find out that somebody has, has tried on all the knickers to, for a few days before you know, to, to buy them and then just return them so I pick up somebody's used knickers. And it's ridiculous. But people are doing that. Or the second way that people try to escape shame is they build a sense of worth or value based on things that don't have ultimate worth or value. So they say, well, I can't be ashamed. I, I'm a billionaire. I'm a millionaire. I'm the head of the company. Uh, or they might create a religion or something like that. A third way we blame the shame on other people or blame others for making us feel ashamed. It's one of the reasons why Christianity is so disliked today. Because when we preach the truth of the gospel about sin, people feel ashamed and they don't like to feel ashamed, so they blame us for making them feel ashamed. And frankly, sometimes, because Christian leaders have fallen so much here in recent years... It almost makes sense for the people who are blaming the church for making them feel shameful. I've seen this in marriages. You know, where a husband feels shame and all of a sudden he blames his wife for feeling, because he's feeling ashamed. Instead of dealing with his own issue that he needs to do. And then, there's a, 
there's a, the fourth way, I almost said fifth way, and that would have really messed you up if you're taking notes. The fifth way, and that's the one here in this story, is murder. Now, murder is not always, murder is not always a physical murder, although it sometimes is. I mean, honor killings today is a form of murder that is an actual physical form of murder that is because of shame. We murder those whom we feel are responsible for exposing our shame. That might be our God, might be family, friends. Doing violence to those closest to us, either physical violence or most often verbal violence toward other people, especially the ones we should protect. I have a theory about honor, honor killings. Why are there so many honor killings in the world? And an honor killing exposes, you know, if, if a man kills his daughter, say, because she's had sex outside of marriage, the shame of that is exposing a flaw in the man and his work as a father, as well as exposing an issue in his daughter. And so in order to cover up his own shame, what does he do? He kills his daughter. He kills the one that he should have protected because his failure to protect actually exposed his shame. This is happening all around. And this is what does, Cain does. Notice Cain murders his brother in his field. Uh, another version of the scripture, uh, there's some, some texts where it actually says that Cain invited Abel out to his field and once Abel got to his field, he murdered his brother. That is the very place that Cain should have provided protection for his brother in his own field. The very place where he should have given safety to his brother. And he polluted his field. And that is why the blood cries out to God for vengeance. And whenever people murder, whether it's literally or metaphorically, to cover their own shame, the blood cries out to God for vengeance, and God will do something about that. God will do something about that. And as we try to escape shame in all of these ways, it always has a disintegrating and destructive consequence in our lives. Whenever we try to do it humanly, no matter what it is, it will ultimately have a disintegrating or destructive effect in our lives. What were the consequences for Cain here? The consequences, first of all, he lied and he denied his responsibility. Said, hey, you know, I don't know what happened to him. Am I bro my brother's keeper? And people who are trying to escape shame, we always do that by lying. We always cover our responsibility. The second consequence, he brought a curse on his own ground, and we bring a curse on our ground that is our place that God has given us when we try to escape shame in our own power using any one of these means of escape or many others that are probably out there, whatever we do it, we curse our own ground. We curse our inheritance, our sphere, our heritage, our labors, and our relationships. Trying to deal with shame on your own always does this. 
The third consequence for Cain is he became a fugitive. Now in our context, when you try to escape shame on your own, all you ever do is try to avoid shame and its consequences. I know there's a lot of people in the world, I see it all the time. I see men at work, and not at, not at work in the East, I see men at work in the West, who are working, who are striving, who are pushing others out of the way in order to try to cover their own shame. And what they're always doing, they're always fleeing their own shame. Instead of dealing with it, overcoming it, being free from it by the blood of Jesus, they're always running from it. And Cain also became a wanderer. In the context of shame, that means that we will go from place to place and relationship to relationship without a sense of fulfillment. I've seen this. I've seen guys who are dealing with their own shame, who are trying to hide it, trying to stuff it down, not acknowledging it, who go from job to job to job to job to job, all trying to cover over their shame. And they, then they'll blame their failure at any one job on somebody else in the job, you know, and, they, and they're just kind of going around that. I've seen people who are trying to escape from their shame who wander from relationship to relationship to relationship thinking that if I have this one night stand or if I live with this person, maybe somehow I won't feel this pain, this shame that's in my life. We become a wanderer. And finally, we feel hidden from the face of God even though we're not. Notice that's what Cain said. It's not what God said. But when we are trying to escape shame on our own, God feels very distant from us, and we feel hidden from him. And the world is full right now of people who are lying and denying their responsibility, of people who have brought curses to their relationships, to their jobs, to their livelihoods, to their resources, of people who are, are running away from shame and using other people to try to escape their own shame, of people who are wandering from relationship to relationship, job to job, place to place, country to country, trying to deal with this whole issue of shame, of people who don't know that God is there and God loves them and God is calling out for them and God is crying out for them and God wants to set them free from the power of shame. So how do we do this? How do we overcome this thing of shame and all of the consequences that we see in the life of Cain? Well, some of that, we're going to be talking about that for the next several weeks. But John tells us a lot today. And using the words uh, that God spoke to Cain, I'd like to suggest that we must raise our faces and raise our faces to God in order to overcome shame. How do we do that according to John? The first thing, and it's absolutely essential, is that we must choose to believe who we really are right now in Jesus Christ. Many Christians are wallowing in shame because they don't believe who they are. They don't believe what Jesus has done for them. It's a bit like they've gotten this, this gift card from the Lord saying, here, here's the price to overcome shame. And they put it in a box somewhere and they never cash it in. Who are we in Christ right now? According to John, we are God's children right now. Right now, you are a child of the Father. Right now, according to John, you are fully loved by the Father. 
Do you know that the Father knows every mess that you make? And he knows every mess that you are going to make. And that's true in your life right now. And even though he knows that, he loves you. And we know that when we see Jesus, we will become like him fully, without shame. This is true. And we have to choose to believe this truth. Secondly, we need to choose to purify ourselves as God is pure. Conforming ourselves to God's reality. Seeking to live the life of Jesus Christ. That's what purifying ourselves as he is pure. That means our life must be conformed to God. Now, How do we do that? First of all, we refuse to make a practice of sinning. We're all going to sin, but what John says is the problem is when you determine to practice sinning, you keep on doing it. So if you find yourself sinning, stop it. Just stop doing it. Stop doing it. When we sin, we should feel guilty. We should take responsibility for ourselves and repent. Just deal with it. Secondly, we also need to choose to abide in Jesus, remembering our union with him. You know, it's very difficult to sin if you remember that Jesus is with you right now. It's very difficult to sin. We only tend to sin when we forget our union with Christ. If we live in that reality, it's hard to keep sinning. We must choose to practice righteousness. You know, right relationship is a choice. And that's what righteousness is about. It's practicing our right relationship with God and our right relationship with other people. And we share in Christ's destruction of the works of the devil. Now we can choose to purify ourselves as he is pure because we've been saved by grace through faith in Jesus. We have this blessing already on us, in us right now. And thirdly, according to John, we must choose to love our brothers, that is, those of the family of faith. Genuine love is what removes our shame. The love of Jesus Christ in the cross, where he died and shed his blood, do you know that that removes our shame? And when we show love to other people, it's like God scours them clean by his blood. It's amazing. Love has power to overcome shame. And God's love is lavished on us in Christ Jesus to drench out our shame, to wash it away cleanly. And then Jesus calls us to love one another because as we show love to one another, real Christian love, that choice, that self-giving choice to others for their benefit, as we demonstrate that, that helps them to be free from shame. And that also means we must refuse to murder people because of our shame. We must refuse to engage in those shame escape maneuvers that is so common to our humanity that tries ultimately to shift our shame onto somebody else. We must not do that. We cannot do that in love at the same time. Shifting your shame is anti-love. You can never love and shift your shame. And the very fact that you try to shift your shame is a demonstration of your lack of love. That's why we must never do it. And thank God 
through faith in Jesus Christ, God has given us everything we need to do this. So Jesus has defeated sin and shame in the cross, and he's overcame shame so that we might lift our faces and live free from shame while helping others to live free from shame. As we embrace who we are in Christ, as we purify ourselves as he is pure, and as we show the love of Jesus Christ to the people around us. And let me tell you, that is the thing that people are going to come to. The people who are suffering and struggling and drowning in shame in the world, what they need to see is a church, a body of Christ, that love each other so much that we're scouring the shame from each other. We will not allow the stain of shame to stay on each other's lives. And we will love each other so that shame is gone and so that we all live above shame and we never use shame to control or manipulate other people. As we apply the love that God has given to us to other people, God accomplishes amazing things in their lives. And this all happens through Jesus Christ. It's time for us to continue with determination that we are going to overcome shame. We are not going to let it have the final say. We are not going to let it have the victory. We will overcome shame. The first step if you're not a follower of Jesus, today's your day. You cannot possibly overcome shame unless Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. And you say, well, how do I do that? Really, it's quite easy. It's not simple, but it is easy. <coughs> Excuse me. Whoop. The way we do that is just go before the Lord and say, Lord Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross to set me free from sin and shame. I ask you to forgive my sin and to lead my life. And I ask you to fill me with your Holy Spirit to scour the shame from me so that I might live boldly for you. Just something simple like that is all you need to do. But don't let the day go by without surrendering yourself to Jesus. And if you want somebody to pray with you, I'm here, a number of others are here, and we'd be more than willing to pray with you. Second thing we need to do today. It is time for anybody who's listening to this or who is here present, if you have tried to escape your shame by murdering somebody, literally or metaphorically, doing any kind of violence, spiritual violence, emotional violence, physical violence, it's time to repent right now. It's time to take ownership of what you've done because it's sin, it's wrong. And if you don't, you bring a curse not only on yourself but your entire family and everything that you have in your life. The good news is that the cross of Christ has paid that price. And so if that's you and you feel this stirring in your heart right now, and you'll feel one of two things. You might feel like your face is going down because you're ashamed, because you've done that, or you might feel angry. And if you feel angry right now, it could be an indicator that you've murdered to hide your own shame. To say, Lord Jesus, I come to you and I ask your forgiveness. I have sinned 
by trying to shift my shame onto somebody else. Instead of taking responsibility for my own actions, I choose now to take responsibility for my actions. And I ask you to forgive me of my shame-shifting behavior. I ask you to forgive me of the sin that I committed that led to shame. And I ask you to scour me clean by the blood of your son, Jesus Christ, and fill me afresh and anew with your love. And then there's a third group. Some that are here or some that are listening right now, you feel like you've been murdered because of somebody else's shame. Somebody else has taken it out on you. It might have been a parent, might have been a spouse, might have been a friend, but you know that you've been wounded deep down inside because of something that's happened to you, because of something that somebody else has done. I believe that the Lord wants to heal you today. And as we go into this time of worship, the Lord is going to begin 